0: is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President of Montessori Europe and one of the world 's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher 's textbook Basic Montessori, and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast in this third of three podcasts on the theme of creativity, Barbara and David are joined by two guests, Amber Meda. A global expert in art and design, founder of the Design Miami Fair, advisor to Christie's, and much in demand as a curator of exhibitions. And Sophie Pretorius, art historian and researcher and archivist for the estate of Francis Bacon, one of the most important figures in 20th century art. Amber, most people can recognize fine art when they see it, but how would you define great design?
1: I think. Great design is endless. I think if you, you know, if it's unbeatable, um, the simplicity of, let's say, even a potato peeler, it, that's, that. I mean, that that's great design. You know, you just, you can add a rubber, you know, handle, you can make it look more flashy, but ultimately that really essential and endless quality just makes it pure and perfect and something that just remains, um, in time.
2: Uh, Amber, thank you for that. Your, um, your childhood was an interesting one, um, as others, uh, you attended auctions with your mum. Um, who was a, de- a design dealer and co-founder of a gallery in London, which I think is still uh, still running yeah, it is um, what was that what was that like to grow up in such a design conscious um, artistic household?
1: Um, well, it was very um, flamboyant and unpredictable, um, uh, very unconventional. Um, at the same time very, I mean, I feel like I had a very unique experience and I I was very lucky in the sense that my mother really treated me as an adult. I was sort of more her partner than I was ever her daughter. And, um, yeah, we traveled everywhere. It was just, you know, the hunt for spectacular pieces of, of furniture. Um, I remember her very much asking me, you know, how I felt about, a certain bars and whether she should, you know, spend X amount of money on, you know, a chandelier. And, you know, I just remember looking up at her, you know, I was probably six thinking, yeah, I think we should get it. It looks really nice. <laughs> um, and, and now in retrospect, you know, now, and now I actually find that I'm actually doing exactly the same things, the same thing with, with my kids. And, and I can see that same stare at me thinking, not sure she should be asking me, um, to weigh in on this, but okay. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was a very unconventional childhood. My, my, we, I was born in Rhodes in Greece. We had very little money. My mother never married. Um, she adopted my sister in Africa. She had my brother from another guy. And we sort of never, well, we never had a father, we never had a male figure in the house. So there was a, you know, it was a very kind of, my mother was definitely the main protagonist, <laughs> the main star of the show. Um, and, and we were just kind of all trailing behind trying to um, fit into this
2: very crazy puzzle. Um, uh did you, yeah. did you have a glamour a glamorous uh surroundings that you lived in? I mean, you said you had no money, but yeah, I here mean, she was sorry dealing in expensive pieces.
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know, we, we lived in Greece and then we eventually moved uh to London. You know, we were well, I was only just born, but my sister at that point was fourteen, my brother was seven, and so they were going to the, the local school in in Rhodes, and that was considerably basic. Um, I mean, they were learning to fish and chase donkeys, which actually has a lot of, um, value, but I think at some point my mother thought, okay, in practical terms, I need my kids to, you know, speak English and read and write. So we moved to London and my mother started doing Portobello market and selling glass. Um, but you know, we were kind of, I mean, we were staying at friends' houses. We didn't even own an apartment. So it was my mother with three children sort of moving from um, place to place. And she eventually, accru- you know, she she met her partner who then, um, her business partner, Liliane, who was buying glass from her at Portobello Market and they ended up buying this gallery and, and sharing this um, adventure of having a design gallery on uh, on Westbourne Grove, which at the time was was, you know, very different than what year is is that roughly like like at the end of the 70s yeah
2: right and um that was really that was really the peak of the chicness of having a you know a gallery there I mean it's yeah in the heart of exciting London
1: yeah definitely no no it was it was it was a very exciting time for the arts and for and for design and you know it was you know, it was Vivian Westwood and Tom Dixon and Elton John. You know, it was all very, um, it was very vibrant. And it was a time of, you know, music and design and also design actually being respected um, and becoming quite fashionable. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, eventually she, you know, she, she, we ended up then, you know, buying a house and, you know, she she, she did make some money. But we, we were very much coming from an imprint where the fridge was completely empty and, but we had great furniture. You know, the furniture was preeminent. You know, and you know, we. I think we all we all remember our bookshelves and the chairs. And you know, um, we were certainly so did the in very.
2: Pass, did it pass through your house on the way to the gallery?
1: Our house was the gallery. Yeah, that was definitely oh, And it, it, as we moved around. Yeah, yeah. I would I would very regularly come home and my bed would had been sold. And yeah, yeah. There was a, it was a strange unattachment. <laughs> um, so you're sort of supposed to fall madly in love with things, but then also not have an attachment because they would not be there when you got home maybe one day. <laughs> I
2: mean, design was was really coming into its own in the seventies uh, and the eighties. Yeah. Um, and kind of reached a peak in a way in the mid '80s, where you know companies who just got by with a bit of old-fashioned letterhead suddenly had to have a logo, and um, you know all the the shops like Habitat were suddenly uh,
1: exactly you know
2: design design led rather than you know pile them high, sell them cheap. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a yeah. You were right in the heart of everything going on. But what what turned you towards Asian art, which is where you, wh- what you got your degree in?
1: Um, well, I think once I finished school, I left home when I was 16 and, um, I, once I'd finished school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and so I thought, well, I, I should probably just study something that I'm really passionate about. And, and Chinese was, was my passion. I am very much into languages and people, um, and different cultures. And I thought, I mean, China just fascinated me. Its culture just seemed, uh, both the history, the literature, just, yeah, really um, inspired me. And my first encounter was we were living in Milan at the time, and our neighbor had a Chinese cleaner who we sort of took under um, our wing. And she had, you know, a very kind of sad story where she had left her kids who were very young in China, and her mother was raising the children. And so she would write these long letters. Um, and I remember just looking at these pages of of characters and just feeling uh, overwhelmed. It was so beautiful to see just these p- pages of full form characters, and um, yeah. So that's that's how I chose Chinese, and then I, you know, I, I went to SOAS here in London, which was great, um, a great institution mm, for like me. Like the wor-
2: world-leading um, center for Asian studies.
1: Yeah, the, the teachers are incredible. You know, it's very, very political, very um, international. Um, and yeah, so I, I moved to China for a year. The, your first year, I did a four-year degree and, and did Asian art. Um, I did Japanese medieval aesthetics and Buddhist architecture. Not very practical yeah. things. Um, <laughs> But studied Mandarin. But this was a world so.
2: apart from the the kind of commercial design um, community in London, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, then at that point I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to get into contemporary Chinese art, and I'll, you know, I'm going to be a contemporary Chinese art dealer. So off I went to New York, and thought, okay, I'm off to Chelsea. This is it. And then I, I think as I as I got deeper into the system. Um, getting to know the characters who were at the top of um their fields really made me think wow I definitely don't want to be a part of this it seemed <laughs> so distant from i mean my my interest lay really in in the content and developing a relationship with the artist and curating the shows and telling stories and and it it seemed as though art was so commercialized and everything that I loved was completely removed. And I just watched these individuals, um, just be complete sharks. And it just seemed very cutthroat. It was not for me. I I, is not that, you know, I love a fight, but mm, (laughs) no, it's not. It sort of ripped the fun out of it. So I think, yeah, then at that point I just thought, mmm. No, I don't think, I don't think I want to do this. So then I, I, um, I went to our Basel in Miami and then I thought, ah, oh, Miami, Miami, it's like a, felt a bit like, oh, I could be part of a city that's a little bit like Berlin. I mean, I'm, I, I'm really young. I can be, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of 21 at this point, 22, I was very young. And, um, yeah, I thought, wow, I could actually live in a city that's really changing, and um thought I'd open a gallery and do historical design, like do Italian mid-century design and combine that with contemporary Chinese art. And then as I was doing that, I was c- sort of curating shows and um almost about to open this space in Miami and then um felt that the interest there was so much interest around me for having a space during the art fair that then it just sort of it snowballed very organically into what then became a fair. And so then I s- w- collaborated with Art Basel and met with Sam Keller and we
2: began Design Miami. You seem to have traveled around the world to be at the very center of, um, you know, cultural revolution wherever it was happening. So I think that's quite exciting. But did are there things about it? Because I know um, this is going back a few years. So, are there things about it that you miss that that period when you were involved with the design Miami and art Basel and
1: Yeah, I mean, coming into contact with so many people um, was thrilling. Traveling was taxing, but so um, nourishing for me personally. Because, like I said, I I really I enjoy diversity and I, I love people. So I think I really got quite a high off of just being able to deal with such a diversity of different people who were dealing with different elements of the fair. Um, and I'm quite eclectic as a person. So I think I like the idea that I could, you know, I'd have to deal with HSBC private bank and Audi, but then I'd also have to, you know, research the material and deal with all the french dealers in paris but then also work with the artists and the designers to come up with installations that would work for the sponsors and then have to work with you know the media and yeah it was a very kind of um it was an exciting and you know layered and eclectic uh way for me to to express myself and i think i was extremely fortunate I, you know i was very 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 young and yeah, it was, it was thrilling. You know, I was on a, on a, on a complete, um, high and, and also obviously having to produce two fairs a year was quite complex. And, you know, you've got thousands of people coming to see something that you spent, you know, months putting together and all of a sudden you're sort of like lights on, rolling the carpets out. And then this thing, well, it's sort of like having a great party. You can plan and plan, but then sometimes it just doesn't turn out or, or it just kind of, it, you know, things just fall into place and they work and, and there's a sort of magic and electricity to the event that happens quite spontaneously.
2: So do you feel that this excitement has, has stuck with you and, or do you feel that it's a world in itself? I mean, has it changed you? Has, has it um, shaped the way you are now? Or was it just a kind of phase in your life that was exciting and now you're in another space?
1: I, I think I just felt very energized. Um, and I think I was also very young, and 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 you I think you're quite fearless when you're young. You don't really think about a lot of the the things that could hold you back or you know, things that you should really be worrying about. You're sort of not even aware of them. So you're you're just kind of cruising forward and thinking. You know, if I think back what I did, I, I, I sort of think it's a bit it's a bit nutty, really. I mean, making a list of, you know, if I actually still have that list, I sort of made a list of the, you know, 13 best design dealers in the world and then called them and then sold them space in Miami and they all showed up and paid me. It seems sort of bizarre <laughs> that, you know, I was only 23. It was very freeing. I think I would just say that America was very freeing for me. The experience was long-lasting, um, they don't care how old you are, they don't care what your surname is, <laughs> they don't care how, you know, whether you're, you know, what what your background is, it's, you know, the reality is, is if you're producing money for the economy, you're in, and that's great for them, and like that's a very, you know, that's an exciting, um, that's, you know, that that is in and of itself quite liberating, I think, then you come back to Europe and actually you find that things are much more considered. And, you know, and there's a lot of... That's great, actually. You know, both worlds um, have a lot of value and do things um, in their own way. But I think as a European going to America and being given um, all of the, you know, the tools to to do something quite monumental um, at such a young age.
2: So as a mother now, um, and looking back on your own childhood, has this... um, you know, exciting role that you had. What is it telling you about how to raise your children? What's it telling you about their opportunities and their choices? I know they're still young, but um, it's already shaping, I'm sure, the way you talk to them, the way you take them around London and show them things that are important to you. Um, How is it manifesting in in your own motherhood now?
1: I think watching my mother be so passionate about her profession, um, was quite big for me. Um, actually to to the detriment of her own family. And she, we were, as I said, not particularly considered, um, as children, to be honest, but we did have a figure who was wholeheartedly committed to her profession. And I think that then for me had a massive echo and it, it, I now feel that if you get to do what you love to do, that is the ultimate gift, you know, being treated as as an adult. I mean, elements of that are wrong, and <laughs> elements are right, but uh, you know I, I said I, I don't really treat my children as I, I don't I've never really babied them because i I didn't live through that, so it's very difficult for me to even mimic that um, uh, and and I can see that the you know the there's, yeah, there's good and there's bad again, um, but I think through the Montessori setting, um, I remember Paula Woodman saying to me, you know, you want to hang on, you want to l- allow for your children to be little for as long as possible, which was the absolute opposite of, of my experience. So I had to really, really think about how I was going to perpetuate something that I wasn't even really feeling able to to do. I'm
2: thinking of, and you've really explained it, how you're being surrounded by um, both the, uh, you know, unusual family situation of being treated like adults and taken around the world to look at
0: mm.
2: wonder, wonderful design and also your own opportunities so young to have a leading role in that sector. Um, mm. Just wondering how it shaped you, but it sounds like it has and that your attitude towards your children is is um that you know where you you want them to to be um trusted and and respected um not treated as Yeah, definitely.
1: No, no, not no n- not at all. No, I mean I think that that sense of respect um definitely echoes through and you know my 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 mother certainly treated us in a way which was very respectful and gave us a lot of um I was also given a lot of privacy. I mean a lot of sort of well, we were very kind of self um regulating all the time. So I think also that gives you a lot of freedom to sort of make all the choices. I mean I actually came from a very in a way Montessori um mindset m- despite the fact that my mother had never been, you know, to to montessori school um but i remember her saying that you know she wished she had gone to to montessori school and you know wished that we had gone as her kids to a montessori school but i think sh- she was just quite naturally Mont- montessorian in you know everything was you know was child led <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> um and everything was accessible you know to to our you know our height and you know we were treated as individuals and, you know, we were independent and left to, you know, resolve it for, for ourselves.
2: I think it's interesting that people, I mean, we only have two examples, you and Francis Bacon, but I think it's interesting that people who are in the arts, whether you're an organizer of, um, you know, cur- the curation of art or an artist yourself, that these are people who are coming from a A background of independence um, and self-realization, and that there is definitely a link between that mindset and um, the attraction to to creating things which are self-expressive. Do do you agree with that, Sophie?
3: I do think that um, a process which proves to the child that you, when you want to create something you can um is is definitely a, a precursor to uh, creative life um i think a lot of well, well at least the what i saw in zimbabwe that wasn't my education um there was a big emphasis on rule following um and uh very little emphasis placed on uh trying trying new things and uh Dealing with the consequences, and um, I think if there is a pattern of uh, very individualistically raised children going into the arts, um, it's it lies in that uh, uh, the freedom to make mistakes, make your own mistakes.
2: Yeah, that's a very important Montessori principle, isn't it, Barbara? That, that...
4: Yes, I, I was just thinking as Sophie was speaking how important. Um, the encouragement of the child to see a mistake as your friend. It empowers you, you believe more in yourself because you you are not afraid to make a mistake. So it gives you the space to try new things. There's, I mean, it's
3: the most well-rehearsed part of Bacon's myth is his commitment to accident and chance that he um, often would encourage he'd sort of cultivate accident or court it in a way that uh, if a painting wasn't working properly he'd throw some paint at it and and see where it landed and he would often say oh well uh the the accidental marks are the best ones they're much better than the ones that i plan um and they, then you can get into a debate about whether or not his throwing the paint is an accident because there he threw it um, but uh ownership of accident uh is is a a very um positive thing to give a child you know so much
1: happens uh, before you're six and there's a it's a massive turning point my daughter Rosa just turned six now and I can see how her taste is quite fully formed I mean it's it's actually spectacular she's always been very clear about um visual elements and colors and you know whether a drawing's finished or not so she, you know she, she was always been quite clear about that but now even just the way she dresses um yesterday she told me that she is a tomboy and that you know she prefers to play with boys and you know she just turned six in April and she dresses herself there's no way I could I, I mean I haven't been involved with what she's wearing Almost ever I mean I think when you know I stopped it I think two. it was one of the saddest days of my life, but she now you know she's 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 always dressed herself um and she really cares she cares so much, you know she 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 definitely she's made all of those decisions so much is already imprinted, but in essence she's pretty much already inhabiting um a space that she has she has forged herself. I, th- mm-hmm.
3: I think with um, what I found reading Montessori and dealing with young children, especially, is that uh, the things that they have so much more of a psychological attachment to mm-hmm. things and this what things as symbols and things as magical talismans, in the way uh, you can't, if, if they're ch- allowed to pick a bowl for themselves. It is so. They know what the bowl they choose says about them, um, and that is something you return to as an artist. Everything you place in the painting has a psychological meaning, or a magical one, or a symbolic one. Um, but there's there's this. I think in a lot of a sort of as much as one can talk about normal culture, there's a, a a step in between where you back off. You say, "What my plate looks like doesn't." say anything about me but um at that very early stage everything you touch says so much about you and it's all a symbol of or an extension of you and the design process i suppose is trying to tap into that and and sell it back to you yeah 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 and then actually my my younger
1: daughter who's only a year younger couldn't care less. In fact, we had to, we we were furious that she just would not learn the names of colors because, you know, in, in our family, I mean, my husband and I are very passionate about the way things look and there's a whole sort of aesthetic regimen and, you know, colors are preeminent. Like we talk about colors all the time. And the fact that Greta just refused to, to, you know, you'd say, what color is this? And she'd say, black it's white, Greta. Yeah. Okay. White. You know, we're like, no, but that's a really big difference between black and white and just getting like really frustrated. Um, and to this day, I mean, she eventually, you know, learned the colors and we were really relieved, but she still doesn't really care. You know, she is that it doesn't really, you know, for, for Rose, it has enormous value and the truth really matters and order really matters. And Greta's just like a completely different um, variety. And she, she, you know, she was born in exactly the same setting and we gave her exactly the same tools and freedom. And she places absolutely, no, that she couldn't care less what she's wearing. She couldn't care less what anyone else is wearing. She doesn't, you know, she wants the bigger bowl, you know, but it's just cause it's bigger, you know, it's just like, um, and, and, It's quite interesting to see two parents that are working in, you know, creative fields and, you know, we really care about, you know, our African crafts and, you know, everything's handmade and, you know, it's just relentlessly, you know dedicated to, precious, to, to precious. detail. Yeah. 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 No, not that things are necessarily expensive, really. It's just that, you know, they were made by someone in you know, a village and there's always a story and, you know, we we traveled, you know, kilometers to get that carpet and blah, blah, blah. But, and, and, and then to watch my two daughters have such a different relationship to their surroundings, um, and, and place value on very different things. um, and and even their relationship to, you know, technology. I mean, Rosa will, you know, if you give her an iPad, she'll play with it for maybe less than a minute and then put it down and, and go and, and draw. Whereas Greta is absolutely obsessed with technology and she's a year younger and she just, she, she's actually making cell phones most of the time. She must have made a million cell phones. She just keeps cutting out little rectangles and drawing numbers on them and like making tiny antennas and just really loves anything related to technology she she's just absolutely fascinated which i know is you know in this day and age is is very normal but it's so interesting even just to see my two daughters like rosa has yeah. absolutely no i mean she loves to watch a cartoon don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not saying that my six-year-old like doesn't care about technology and doesn't love to watch Disney plus because she does. But, you know, again, just so interesting to see, you know, two brains, um, and, and souls be given completely the same setting and, and them have wildly different experiences.
2: I was remarking to Barbara earlier about how, um, most people are like your younger daughter. So, you know, you, you you can buy very cheaply, very beautiful and sophisticated fashion on the high street, but most people you pass on the street are wearing denim or leisure wear or old crumpled sports clothes. And it's also true when you look into someone's sitting room, and um, which I always hate to do from the street, and, you know, even companies like Ikea, where everything is can't possibly be cheaper, there's still really high concept design in that. And yet when you look in most people's sitting rooms, it's this horrible jumbled mess of nonsense. So why do you think that is? Why does everybody reject the principles of design when it's so prevalent in, in society, in Western society?
1: You know, making really cheap design is, um, is, 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 is problematic. You know, it's, it's, you know, we buy and then we throw away very easily. And the idea is not really about buying something that is of quality that will last you forever. The idea is to just sort of buy something that's fashionable and suits your needs right now. And then once you're done with it, you'll move on to something else. And I think that that applies to both fashion and um, design for interiors. And that's sort of, you know, the product of the society that we we live in now. And it's it's shameful, really. I mean, you know, there's all these ways to save the planet. It's like, well, if we just stop producing so much stuff um, and people are being paid to fill landfill, really. I mean, that's pretty much their job. I mean, including my husband, by the way, who, you know, designed products. But, you know, his quest is in his own way. To design something that won't fall out of fashion, you know and that is designed as well as possible and um, you know produced as responsibly as possible, but th- it, it is very very challenging to design in a conscientious way it's it's much more you know accessible for a designer today to produce in in large quantities and work in materials that are you know not not environmentally. Friendly,
2: Barbara, isn't it remarkable? Um, maybe you can comment on this: how the Montessori materials, made of you know beautiful wood and um, natural paint colors and so on, how they've survived you know for so long, over a century. And is, is there any is there any explanation for that? You know, how have we ended up with such classic? Um, materials and, and, and um, apparatus that no change has been needed.
4: Well, it's interesting because some changes have been made, but they have been only um, uh, kind of superficial. So, for example, the red rods initially were green, but became red. Uh, but I think what survived the materials, particularly the sensorial materials, is their clear function because each material has been designed with a specific purpose um, and embodies an essential concept of understanding the environment in which we live. And as such, is timeless because to understand the relationships of size or the relationships in shades of colors is something that we need in everyday life. Um, And Montessori gives it to the children at a time when they are particularly sensitive to this, so it becomes part and parcel of their being. And I think that's what makes um, the Montessori classroom and the Montessori materials timeless, because they embody this quality of essential concepts from which the environment is made. And the designers of today will, to some extent, um, return to those concepts when designing things. And there are things about the Montessori materials from the very original range of materials that are absolutely exquisite. The Italian manufacturers who um, made the materials for Montessori in the early 20s, for example, they made a set of geometric solids which were painted Mm -hmm. in pale blue. And to this day, I am so sad that I didn't buy those pale pale blue shapes because I still think about them and they have stopped producing them. And it was a most exquisite pale blue. (laughs) 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 Um, And that tells you something about my relationship to color and um, all sorts of other things.
2: uh, I remember the color tablets used to be silk thread.
4: And that they, was w- they were wound round
2: st- like a spool around each tablet.
4: I still have a pink and pale blue old tablets wound with the silk thread um, because somebody very generously gave it to me and said, I think you will enjoy having those. Oh, so those are, those are my little uh, Montessori talismans. Um, but um, we uh, we have actually uh, there was a period when um, Sir Nicholas produced color tablets that were wound in wool, ah, and so they had exactly the same quality as the silk tablets and the same um, real need to hold the tablets very carefully, which the plastic mm-hmm. tablets don't don't have yeah. um, anymore. But I wanted to tell Umbra that. Um, in my very first um, year of be running my own school, we had a son of an artist, and um, he absolutely refused to talk about colours. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the mum would always say, "Just check that he knows his colours, because I, I, I'm not quite sure." It sounds
3: like me. <laughs> and, and
4: you know, and then when I asked him once more about some colour, he said. But I don't have to tell you if I don't want to, do I? And that is precisely what Montessori is about. You have the choice to withhold information if you choose to do so, particularly if you feel pressure from your parents. And after all, you already know it. It is because, and I'm sure that... Your Greta knows the colors, she kn- but she also knows this is important to you. Very. She has chosen not to share. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I was
1: just I... going to add to what Barbara said about the, the materials. Like those objects are so beautiful. Like those materials are so, um, you know, they feel precious. And I think they leave a really indelible mark in, in, in children's psyche and their emotional fabric um and i think you know the the montessori setting in particular that sense of beauty and respect um just you know holding a perfect wooden egg um or even just that connection to nature that that element of beauty and just the way you handle things and that sense of respect i think that's a really big gift to give to to a child because you're sort of Enabling them to have a relationship with with an exterior world that is really I don't know if is the right word, but sort of dignified and respectful.
3: I also found it interesting um the how ha- harmonized all the materials were between each other, the fact that each was a tenth or or a eight well, all working in tens. In order to facilitate the learning of arithmetic, when that became uh, something you could conceive of, um, I, I, I mean, in in like memory studies and with mnemonic things, the big idea is take something unknown and tie it onto something known, um, and that. Uh, when you're, when you're learning numbers and you have to place them on the rods that correspond, um, it is this the, the, the uh, unity of all the materials as a set in creating a singular uh, frame of reference is
4: very elegant. I think that's one of the biggest gifts, Montessori gifts to children, in, that, in the fact that there is so much indirect preparation. You plant so many seeds of of learning, which will come incredibly useful later on. They will become a point of reference. And, and I think that is the, so they enlarge their repertoire of understanding the world through those indirect preparations. And that is often so missed. And yet, for me, that is the biggest gift we give to children. Yeah.
0: It,
2: there's a um one of the sensitive periods for young children that Montessori identified is a sense of order. And I know that if you disrupt a child's sense of order in their home or other parts of their environment, it can be a great source of upset and disorientation. Um, and yet, in a high design home, um, it, is it are they respectful of your sense of order? So, <laughs> are, Amber, are they are they chaotic <laughs> in your in your you know perfectly chosen order that you've got um, designed by yourself and your husband?
1: Well, I mean, I think the sense of order. I mean, I remember you know I was a very um, you know I, I was I, I, I desperately wanted order as a child, and and it was certainly not ordered at, at you know at home. And there was a lot of unpredictability and, um, you know, I, I, I got picked up from school and I was doing my homework in the back of the car so I could get it done and, you know, move on to something else. And I think children generally thrive in, in, in a setting that is, um, organized and ordered and and it allows for like a restful and meaningful
2: experience. Isn't it the curator and the collector, um, Isn't that role also a creative role? Um, Amber, you might have thoughts on this. So, you know, you're making meaningful selections and building a comprehensive vision. um, And that's a a creative act in itself, I I would think, in the context of, you know, the meanings behind the history and evolution of art.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're making decisions that, you know, have an impact on, you know, the... History of art and design, and you know, you're, you're making a choice, and so you're making quite a big statement whether you're working for a museum or
2: for a private client. Barbara, could you comment on how children are as collectors? Um, you know, how they can collect marbles and dolls and whatever, but are they collecting to be creative? Does that make sense? Well,
4: I think when children collect, um, they collect either. Because they like something or it, it's important to them, but they also collect because their friends collect. There is a social element, and that is reflected in art collection too. Yeah. That uh, uh, grown-ups will suddenly collect somebody because somebody else has got it on their wall. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, the the wonderful thing about children's collections, um, they are collections of things that mean so little to us as adults. I once looked after a child who was collecting rubbings from (laughs) erasers. She she had them in tiny little boxes of different colours. And she she would, when I went to visit, she would say, now, have you seen my new collection? (laughs) And um, so, you know, as bizarre as it may seem, um, um, we, we, I, I think as human beings we do like to make collections of things that we have relationship with. This is how we furnish our houses, isn't it? It's we, we choose things um, that somehow resonate with us, um, that reflect our personality, that um, show others what we are all about, and um, uh, I loved in Ambra's um, description of a of an African object, that it was made by somebody, it had to travel a long way to us, uh, and yes, it can be just a tiny little spoon or a little rose made out of can in the townships in Cape Town, um, the fact that I have chosen to bring it and put it in my, uh, on my shelf actually says something about the person who made it, who made connection with me as a human being, and I value it enough to bring it and put it. And I think that's what collecting should be about. It should be about the human relationships, the reasons why we have made it part of, of our environment, and it kind of fits in very much with Umbra's um, story of, you know, objects have got stories and they reflect lives of other people. And by choosing something made by somebody else, we are in a way celebrating and respecting what they have given to their community or to the people around them. And I think that that's what I would like to foster in... Uh, all little children to see the object as having a story, something unique about the person who has created it. And that way we will foster the kind of wider understanding of humanity and what we are because for me, the creative aspect of human beings is something that I still value. And for me, that holds the spirit of the human being. And when Montessori talks about the spiritual embryo of the child. For me, it is that spiritual embryo holds the capacity to create, holds the capacity to be a unique human being. And I think that's important to celebrate and value.
0: That seems like a good place to wrap up. So thanks again to Barbara and David and to Sophie and Amber. Um, We'll see you next time for more of My Montessori Life.